0: All right, so um, I'm going to start with sort of the first part of this. Uh, we've already talked about the first temptation. We talked about the devil. We talked about temptation. Um, and so I'm not going to recap a lot of that. Um, go back a few weeks if, uh, if, if you want to recap sort of how we can look at this. Um, one thing I do need to say is, um, and I think I touched on this the first during the first temptation, it's not necessary for you to, um, although if you do, it's fine, it's not necessary for you to assume that this is um, a physical external thing going on in Jesus, like meeting with the incarnated, the incarnation of like evil in flesh, um, because there's two things going on here, and, and scholars have written a lot about this. This is not just me talking. Um, there are these the second two temptations. This one, he's sort of whisked away to the temple, right, um, and, then, and then the next one, he's taken to the top of a mountain. Well. The temple was really far from where he was, and there's no mountain in that area at all. So it's more of a a lot of scholars have sort of taken this as um, an inner dialogue in the midst of 40 days of fasting um, and the temptations, Jesus working through the temptations um, that are being sort of leveled at him by the presence of evil that is sort of there. And he wants to conquer these things so that he can rightly be the first sort of child of the covenant to do this thing right, right? So um, take that for what you will. There's, there's, there's sort of different ways you can look at this. I'm totally fine with that. I respect you and your thoughts and your mind. I, I want you to grasp and wrestle with that. For the purposes of this conversation, um, I'm, just going to, I'm just going to say it like it's written. Um, okay, so then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So here we are. Um, We have a picture now of the temple. There is a place on the pinnacle of the temple. I believe what he's probably talking about is probably this area right here, or like this area back here. Probably not that area there, um, for specific reasons. Now, um, every morning there would be Um, A priest who, as the sun is coming up, like right when the sun would sort of shoot across the plains and light up the mountains of Hebron, the, the, the priest would stand up on the pinnacle of the temple and blow the trumpet, calling everyone to worship. And the people would come from wherever they were um, their houses, um, their, the, the town square, people would have already been up and sort of bustling right before dawn. And at this point, they hear the trumpet and they all come to the temple because there's some morning sacrifices that are about to happen and they're all gonna be present for that and they're going to um, observe the sacrifices, take part in the worship, um, times of prayer, um, probably some, some, some singing as well. Um, and most of the people would be gathered in the courtyard, there, here, over here. Very few people would be sort of in... The inner area here. Um, only specific, full-blood Jewish, usually men, always men, actually, women weren't allowed past this gate down here, I believe. Um, and so the image Jesus has in his head is this. What if, just throwing out ideas? So I, I'm gonna start a ministry. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start a movement. How can I start this thing off? And a bang, right? And so the devil took him to the pinnacle of the temple and said, what? Here's what we could do. Here's what we could do. There's going to be all kinds of people there gathered probably for the morning, you know, the morning uh, sacrifice. What if you just kind of jumped? What if you look up there like, hey, everyone, look up here. And then you just kind of jumped off the top of the temple, right? And then here's what we're going to do. Angels are going to fly down and grab you and they're going to catch you and like you can like float down. Picture like, the Creed music video, higher, right? (laughs) That's what's in my head. Uh, And you're floating down. Think of the people. Think of like, wow, like David Blaine stuff. Like, wow, look at this guy. He's a rabbi. And if he starts his ministry by doing magic and like flying down, like miraculous things, that's, that's how you start, right? Like that's, that's how you get a crowd. And that's the point, right? Is to get a crowd. Um, is it? So the first thing you need to know is that um, this actually was sort of the method of, of ancient messiahs in Jesus' time. Jesus was not the first messiah to show up. There were a bunch before him that claimed to be messiahs. Um, and usually usually they would rise up. They'd make some big speeches. They'd make some huge promises. They'd gather a large crowd. They'd lead some kind of rebellion And they'd be killed and usually crucified. Um, This happened over and over and over again. These guys were killed. They were beaten. Heads were cut off, burned alive. Several messiahs. There's this one guy, um, uh, Theutis. He gathered these huge crowds of people by basically gathering them all together and saying, hey, I want you to come with me. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go down to the River Jordan. I'm going to stand in front of it. I'm going to part the seas like Moses. And and we're going to part the River Jordan gonna stand up and we're gonna walk through and charge into the city and take back, um, take it back from sort of Roman occupiers, right? Um didn't go well. Um and then and then uh so but that's how you would gather large crowds of people by promising these huge magic sort of uh, magic tricks. Um there's this guy, Simon Magus, and he uh, he promised to fly through the air. Um he promised that he I'm gonna fly for you all. And you find the story, he dies. Um And so then there's this other, there's this other guy, this Egyptian Messiah that promised that he promised everyone who was following him that I'm going to lay flat the walls of Jerusalem. I'm going to sort of, and every one of these is sort of hearkening back to like, right? Like ancient Jericho, you got Moses, you got all these, all these ancient sort of stories of they're, they're hearkening back to that. I'm going to take us back because the path, it's always back there, right? Like, that's the idea. Like, like we're off track. I'm going to get us back to when we were on track, right? That's, that's what they always kind of promise. And so that also didn't go well for this guy. And there's actually, this is mentioned in Acts 21, Paul is actually at one point confused for this Messiah. Um, someone comes to him and says, aren't you the Egyptian who turned some, some of our people against their leaders? Didn't you lead 4,000 terrorists out into the desert some time ago? You ever, you ever like hear a rumor about yourself? You're like they think that's me. They think I did that. Actually here's the, not that, but I hear rumors about myself. Um, uh, who knows though, one day. Um and so um and so this I mean this is kind of this is a temptation, right? Jesus finds himself in this newfound power. And the first thing you have to do with the newfound power is to turn some stones into bread, right? You're you're gonna you're gonna make sort of money and prosperity and and um and you're gonna you're going to pull things for yourself out of, out of places that nobody else could. And this is kind of one of the temptations of people who rise into power. Now you have access to things. Um, bread is sort of the symbol of it, right? Money, riches, fame, whatever, um, that nobody else has access to. You're in the desert, and you can take rocks and turn them into bread. You're pretty special. The temptation sort of is the same that any leader, it's not just a unique thing to Jesus, it's any any leader who rises up into any position of influence or authority, here's a temptation. You could benefit from this. You can get food where nobody else can. Um, And so here we are. um, You can impress some people. The temptation here is sensationalism. That's really the the huge idea of of this. This is what we tend to want. This is what we want in our leaders. Um, Instead of a God who's familiar, who's humble, who's present, who's with us in the darkness, who is familiar with our sufferings, who um, will wash our feet, just a humble Messiah. We tend to want a sensational Messiah. We want um, someone to, we have this desire to impress and enchant um, big shows, displays of power. We've taught that the best way to get people to, um, to sort of join our movement and our cause to become followers of Jesus is to put on great shows with lights and fog, put ourselves and our holiness on display. And so there's this general idea that like they're watching you. Um, first off, you've got to be great. You've got to be successful. Um, and then we're going to talk about all the great things that, that, that Christians do that are, that are better than sort of what everyone else does, right? Like, we're going to talk about how, um, we're going to put out stats and say, well, Christian marriages, did you know they survive? Uh, they're a much higher rate of success in Christian marriages than others. And then we're going to, we're going to put out all these stats to say, like, we're pretty impressive, right? Uh, as a matter of fact, like, the stats in Christian marriages are the same as non-Christian marriages. Um, and we all know you can sort of manipulate... Things to look a certain way. Um, but what we want to do is a display of greatness. We want to sort of put out there the idea that what we have is great, what we have is impressive, um, what we have is sort of attractive in any way, in every way, that one thing can be attractive. And so we want to sort of... My wife tells me that there was this, these little girls that they would ride to school with when she was, little, when she was a little girl, And they were just really, really, really rich. And and the girls basically had somehow come to the conclusion that it was because God loved them more that they were very rich. And they would say, we're not rich. We're just blessed. They were Southern. We're just blessed. And the idea is, the idea is that, like, if, and we, again, we export this to Africa, right? Prosperity gospel. Greatness. Um, All of this comes from the Messiah that you choose. Well, they failed because... They, they don't have the right Messiah, so they're poor. Um, and we confuse physical blessing and attractiveness and praise and crowd size, whatever, with some kind of love of God. Um, or something that we've particularly done that was, that was holy. And so Jesus answers this right off the bat. And he starts off in verse 7. He says, Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, Um, anytime you're reading scriptures and you come to someone quoting scriptures, several things you need to do. First, you need to look at what, what the context of which the person quoting was in. You're going to look around them and they're going to say, um, okay, what was going on? What, what, how did this apply to exactly what they, what they were going through? And then you also need to understand that they're quoting a piece of scripture. That's like giving out a reference to an ancient passage. It's sort of like saying, you know, Genesis chapter four, um, It's sort of like Jesus is saying, I remember this passage. And it's not just this one verse. It's this massive passage that this verse is in that Jesus would be bringing to mind. And so when this temptation comes, you could be, you could instantly have a lot of followers. You could be really famous. Just do this, impress these people right now. And Jesus says, you shouldn't tempt the Lord your God. Like this verse pops into his head. The verse that pops into his head is actually Deuteronomy 6.16. Don't put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massah. So now you have more questions. Well, what happened at Massah? Right? This is, this is, how you, this is part of how you study. So you have to understand like what, what happened at Massah. And then, so now, not only do we go back to Deuteronomy, we're going we're gonna to find this event. Um, what is this in reference to? You? So for a little context of Massah, Massah was given the name Massah. It's a, it's a location in the desert. It was given the name, um, which means testing, um, because of a certain event. Now, these Israelites, uh, remember, had been freed from Egypt. They were enslaved under Pharaoh, and God sets them free. And as the story goes, uh, they are led by this pillar of cloud during the day and this pillar of fire at night, and they, they get to the, the Red Sea, and the fire moves behind them, and the seas part, and they travel through the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's army is wiped out. It's, it's all incredibly miraculous, right? Um, and they get to the desert, and they're a little hungry, and so God starts dropping food every single day, except for the Sabbath, because there's a reason for that. I'm actually going to talk about that. Um, and so food is dropping from the sky like every day, and it's this incredibly sort of miraculous story. Their story is incredibly miraculous. But after a while, it's it, it you know anything that is impressive. Anything that is um, that is that is miraculous starts to lose its luster. It starts to normalize, and so the people are like, the food comes down in the morning. I'm like, thanks, they're eating it, right? It's it's like it's kind of like how we forget every time you pull out your phone, what you're holding, right? Like Beauty and the Beast when he pulls out the mirror. Look at this, look at this magic mirror. You can just Show me the beast. See, look. Kids today are like, oh, it's like an iPhone. <laughs> the magic is gone, right? Um, and so they start grumbling, you know, I'm thirsty. I'm really thirsty. I'm, I'm exceedingly thirsty. And, and, and so as the passage goes, it goes like this. The people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, why now have you brought us up from Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Drama. And he named the place Massah, which means test, and Meribah, which means quarrel, because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel. And because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? There it is. It, it's, really, it's really quite simple and easy to understand. Um, I'm really thirsty. Well, I, I don't have anything to give you to drink. I'm sorry. I, I, I thought there was a God among us, right? Isn't there... A, hello, is there, a, is there a deity around here? I mean, I seem to remember fire and passing through oceans and food. Like, I'm still, it's, I'm still eating it. All I want a little, if you can do all that, I just want a little water, right? I seem to remember that there was a deity among us. You see, the problem, the problem with impressing people with anything is that it normalizes and then you have to do more and then you have to do more. Um, uh, this is why charismatic figures make, make terrible and dangerous leaders, honestly. We see this over and over and over. Um, the people that we want to follow are these charismatic, sensational leaders. And we are a danger to ourselves in doing this. Um, because in order to retain power and influence, you have to produce greater and greater acts of charisma and power. And part of Jesus' time in the wilderness was to replay this exact scenario, to replay it in his head uh, as an Israelite wandering. And, and we can see him doing just that. Uh, he's, he's in the same way that the people were, were grumbling about water and saying, isn't there a deity around here that can give us some water? I mean, we did all these other miraculous things. Where's the water? Um, and then sort of Jesus has to, in the desert, in the same position the people were in, he remembers the story. He begins to first off think about, you know, this could, I got a lot of power. This could go really well. I could, I could rule. And then he's like, wait a minute. I'm in the desert. And he starts replaying what happened in the desert in his head. Don't test the Lord your God. And he, and he comes back to this idea of, of don't test because he understands that, like, the sensationalism, it wears off, it normalizes, it doesn't... Um, it doesn't, it doesn't satisfy the people. And it's coming to terms with the fact that spending your time trying to impress people and give them what they want inevitably ensures that they turn on you. Every single time, they will turn on you. In fact, uh, so sensationalism isn't about tricks. It's not about uh, miracles. Um, when I talk about sensationalism, when I talk about um, impressing people to gain sort of their, their following... Um, I'm talking about anything designed to display attractiveness, to create an illusion of perfection, an air of superiority, authority, dominance, supremacy, anything that lifts you, me, us, the church up above other people. When we act this way, like we are above others, we are usually doing it from from an idea that like, no, this is how you create followers. You do impressive things. You lift yourself up above and people are like, I want to be up there and they try to climb up, right? This is not how the kingdom of God works. It should not be how the kingdom of God works. Um, Christianity is not about impressing anyone at all. Um, In fact, it's just the opposite. Um, It's enslaving. Because you can never be honest about who you are. We're all hiding the flaws, the darkness. We're all hiding it. You can't be honest. You can't say what you think. You can't say what you're struggling with. And I know this. And I know. I actually... One of the weird things about... um, about having a foot in the, the sort of the pastoral culture is that like is having conversations with all these pastors um, at random gatherings and conferences where um, you can tell they're trapped. They feel trapped. They can't be honest. They can't say what's really going on in their lives. They have to maintain what they've built. So they have to maintain this air of, like, I'm up here, I, no one can see me drop down a little bit because you start to lose people. You start to, like, no, I, I can't. And then, and so there's this party line that they're sort of towing, but when you have conversations, they're like, yeah, but I'm also exploring this, I'm reading this book, it's blowing my mind. But I, I, you can't change, you can't, you can't really, you can't really grow. If you grow, it's unwanted, right? And so... Um, this is true of all of us. You build something really impressive and the only way to go is up. You can't change it. You can't redirect it. You can't, you can't. It's enslavement. Um, and so my wife and I, we, uh, we have a regular ritual. Um, we just did it last week. We, uh, we, it's like sort of a four and one, like four months on one week off. We, not only do we have a Sabbath on Monday, we have a, sort of a, a Sabbath every, every four months, sometimes every three months if, if a year is really busy. And so basically three weeks a year, we go and do nothing somewhere. We go to like a mountain, uh, and we get a little cabin for a week, and we just, we just be together, and we don't answer our phones, and we, we do our best not to communicate with the outside world, just each other. Because... Um, there's this you ever heard of this this chemical we all have by now this chemical dopamine that sort of runs in your body dopamine is this chemical that's sort of a reward chemical whenever something is nice someone compliments you you get a little a little a little dopamine hit in your head it's like a micro dose, dose of it what what to your body sort of feels like an amphetamine like it's 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 good it's good feeling um, it happens whenever you get a notification on your smartphone you get that little buzz you look a little thing pops up and you're like hey 20 people liked yes 20 little hits of dopamine, um, and it feels good, and you get this whenever someone says something nice to you, whenever you do something nice for other people, and there is this sort of dopamine hit, um, and so, um, several years ago, we noticed sort of the physiological dimensions of all of this, the insane pace of, of the modern world, that there's these chemical reactions that happen in your brain when you receive any type of affirmation, um, And it it, it's from as small as a a like on social media to as big as um like a question like what do you think I should do or an email. Like I don't I everyone hates receiving email, but we love receiving email. Because we're we feel wanted and needed. Like, oh they need my help again. I I guess I'll do it. Um (laughs) they want you. You're you're wanted, you're needed, you're necessary. In your eyes, on some small level, you are sensational. And, and living that way at a sustained level is, is really unhealthy. Always feeling wanted, always feeling needed and necessary, um, always making sure they don't forget about you, um, always outperforming, always being there, always being available. Um, and so we end up with a hit followed by a hit, followed by a hit, followed by a hit. And it becomes this addiction. And we're all sort of doing this to each other. I get an email notification, then it feels nice. And I write you back, and that feels nice. And then you get some advice, and new information feels nice. Um, And so we're doing this to each other, and we just keep moving, and keep moving, and keep moving. Um, And eventually our bodies just adjust to living in this amplified state. And you start, what happens is you start to lose a sense of normalcy in your life. It's the desecration of normalcy. Because what happens is you take some time away to rest, and... You're trying to rest, but you find yourself restless. You're restless. You can't rest. So you just instinctively grab your phone and start flipping. I need dopamine now. I need I need that. And you actually start to believe that your worth is found in your abilities and your talents and how people view you and your own intellect. And you start to forget that when scriptures talk about Jesus, the Messiah, the one who, to whom all praise is actually due, it describes, even ancient writers described the Messiah in interesting ways. They said, He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to Him, nothing in His appearance that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with sufferings, like one from whom men hide their faces He was despised, and we esteemed Him not. Surely He has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, and we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted but he was pierced for our transgression he was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace with his wounds we are healed the descriptions we have of the Messiah and as we follow the life of Jesus what you see is this embrace and this rejection this embrace and then rejection and then you actually start to see that Jesus sort of um, it's, it's like he was okay with it like he was in complete control at peace with it all and then you look at his life and it turns out he had these rhythms there's this way that he would live um and this rhythm is everywhere. You see it in life. Everywhere. We sing a song this morning uh, in our winters, give us spring. through New life only comes about when something else dies. And so I've talked about this before. I'm going to give a little ref- quick refresher on it. Um, this is what your life should look like. It should, it's what me and some of my friends, we call sound waving. Like We talk to each other and we're like, hey, how's your life, man? I'm just... I'm really trying to sound wave. And what that means is basically ups and downs. There's a rhythm. Uh, I'm I'm on for three or four months and then I'm off for a week with my family. I'm I'm, I'm on for six days. I'm off for one day. And what this does is the day off, the time resting reveals the audacity of the other six days. The audacity of of the way that we live. The constant sensationalism that we're trying to put out there for other people. And it's incredibly unhealthy. And when you find yourself sitting, and you can't even sit in quiet. You can't even spend any time in prayer and meditation because all you can do is like, I have to check in. I actually did it last week on Sunday. I sent out like two or three texts because like I hadn't heard anything all week. I sent out like two or three texts like, how's, how's it going this morning? How's it going this morning? I'm nicking, bro. I need, I need something, right? Like, and everyone, two people didn't reply. I was like, yeah, and one person's like, it's fine. Actually, no, they, they replied and said, it's a mess. The speaker's cursing up a storm and everything, everyone's leaving. I was like, you know what? I see what you're doing. Put my phone down. I don't need this. And so the problem is that most of us, though, we're living here, right? Like, we're on. We are on. There's no rhythm. And when there's no rhythm, I mean, to put it in musical terms, if you don't have rhythm, it's not even a song. It's just noise. I can hit a cymbal five times, but if I don't hit it in a rhythm, there's no song. There's nothing. It's a mess. You're just on all the time. And anything that is on all the time burns out. It dies. It is unhealthy. It's not, it, it produces nothing good. And so you see this in the life of Jesus. You see him... Regularly um, in the morning, escaping away to pray. Several times you see the, the crowd pushing in on him and giving him what we would all accept, like, yes, this is going great. Look at the turnout, right? Uh, and, and what he does is he gets in a boat, and he's like, hey, I need, to, I need to go to the other side of the lake. Put him in a boat, and they row him to the other side of the lake. And, he, and the way this story is described, it's almost like you can see the people running around the lake. <laughs> like, hey, it's going to go over there. Wait, no, no, oh, oh, back over here. It's going to go this way. Um, and he's just trying to get away because he's like, I, this is not... This is not the point. And so he's sort of backing away. And then um, and this is what happens. The, the time of Sabbath, when there's nothing to do, it calls out the insanity of the other six days. Um, what is Jesus doing when he's, when he's facing this temptation? He's in the wilderness. He's in the desert. He's, he's just realized what his life is going to be like. It's revealed to him in his baptism who he is. He's the Messiah. the savior of the world. And he's like, I, I kind of got to deal with this ego. Got to deal with it. You got to make sure it's that, it's, that it's healthy. We all have it. Um, and, he, and he specifically deals with it. Um, I mean, the big problem here is identity. We see um, the big purpose for the temptation for sensationalism um, the, the reason that we desire sensationalism is, is the result, right? I mean, that's what we're after. We're after results. There would be this sort of jumping off of, of the temple. Everyone would see him. There's this maximum exposure. Um, you couldn't If you got like a group together, like a business people in a room, and you ask them, hey, what's the best way to launch this thing? Jumping off the roof is scoring really well. I think that would be a great way to start this ministry. Okay, I'll jump off the roof. Um, and so like, this is what he's sort of he's working through um, because what happens if he does this? Instantly, the crowds, they gather, they see him, and there's this result, and it's it's measurable. There's actually this rabbi in the first century named Gamaliel. He was actually Paul's rabbi. He had a thousand followers. Everywhere he went, a thousand people are with him. This is actually, like, this is what the rabbis wanted. This is how they kind of knew and measured their success, how many people were were arguing for their teachings, how many people for their yoke, if you will, um, how many followers did they had, and part of this was Jesus coming to terms with one simple but hard to accept truth. And here's the truth, and you have to accept this truth if this is ever any any of this is ever going to make sense to you. And it's simple: the results are not the point. The results are not the point. The results are not the point. Whatever you're doing, the results are not the point. Um. We tend to have these normal thoughts about about what we give our time to, thoughts like, look what a success that was, Um, look how many people showed up, look how much product we sold, Um, look at the growth. And the result becomes the point that comes to be where you get the joy. And you spend all your time hoping for the result. And we all need to spend some time specifically focusing on the truth that, the simple truth that giving yourself to something that matters is in itself the blessing, the ministry, the joy. That you have something that matters. That you have found Christ. You have found the gospel and grace. And you know this matters. You know it reconciles people to each other and to God. And however that looks in front of you right now, you have something that matters in your life. You have something that matters in your life. And you can name it. You have that. And the fact that you can spend time pouring yourself out for that thing is the point. That's what, why God brought you here. That's why God put you in the position that you're in because you are equipped to pour yourself out for this thing. Um, all of life, marriage, community, work, ministry, faith, parenting, none of it is about the results. We don't pour into our children because we know that one day they're going to be very successful. We pour into them because they're important to us. Because they mean everything to us, and so we pour ourselves into them. Um, it's a good, holy thing to do. It's a godly thing to do. Um, there's this song that we sing regularly called "Grace Upon Grace," and it's it's an idea that comes from First John. There's this verse that goes, "For from His fullness we all received grace upon grace upon grace." And so there's this idea that um, it's not just that there's grace is the the word for gift, so it's not just that there's this grace, these gifts that we receive. Um, It's that there's grace upon that grace and upon that grace. Um, And here's, so I'm going to draw because that's the only way to explain what's going on here. Um, So let's say you have something that matters in your life. You have something that matters to you. That's good. That is grace. That is a gift. That you have something, someone, um, a a person, a human being, uh, a, a ministry, a justice cause, something that you care about. Something that matters—that is a gift. Now, um, let's say that you have the ability to pour yourself out for that. A lot of people don't. A lot of people have something they care about, but there's nothing they can do about it. They don't have any ability. You might have the ability to pour yourself out for that thing. That is another gift—grace upon grace. Now, what if this thing grows? What if it? What if it just? Yes. What if it gets huge? That's another grace. It—it it doesn't mean the first thing wasn't a grace. It's, an, it's a grace upon grace, upon grace. And then what if it turns out that you can actually, like, what if it sustains you? What if it provides? What if you make a living out of it? That's another grace. But what you have to understand is that all of it is a grace. Each and every piece is a gift from God for you to receive. The fact that you woke up this morning with breath in your lungs and that your life and your purpose matters to you, that's a gift It is not found in whether or not people see it. It is not found in whether or not you gather large crowds of people. It is not found in whether or not anyone thinks you're sensational. It's not. You already have. You already have the gift. Um, There is this phrase that sometimes people use where they say, I could could tell that uh, the, the favor of God was on your life. I understand what's being said, but oftentimes we attach it to scientifically measurable things, mathematical things, growth of crowds, people, ministries, and employees. Um, that's, a, that's a gift. That doesn't mean the favor of God is on you. The favor of God is on us collectively. Whenever I hear that, I kind of turn it back and I say, You do too. You're standing here and you're fully clothed and you look healthy and you're breathing and you're speaking to me now. Like we are here. Life is a gift and we should receive it as such. I mean, this is what the Eucharist is. Um, the Eucharist is another, is another word for the, for the communion table. Uh, you is is confirmation word that basically means good. Kairos is the word gift. It's a good gift. It's the good gift. The good gift is that someone poured out For you, Jesus poured out his life for you that you could find healing and hope and salvation. And part of this is that you will see not only Christ in that, in this very common thing, but you will begin to see Christ in all of it. We continue to live. Have you ever thought about this? We continue to live. The only reason you are alive today is because something else died yesterday for you. Like you ate some food. Even if you're a vegetarian, vegetables dying, right? Um, the fact is that like you live off of something else giving life. All of this points to Christ. All of this points to life as a gift for you. Christ poured out his life for you. Every time you sit down to a meal, you should ponder the cross of Christ. And when you do your regular ritual prayer, that's just sort of a habit now at this point, you should probably stop and say, look at this. Like I have a it's it's sort of like a it's a plate of the Eucharist. Right? It's a symbol of like life poured out so that I can continue to live, so that I can find life. So when Jesus I mean when Jesus says, Don't test the Lord your God. Like you could you could go up in the temple, you could throw yourself off and you get these massive crowds. People would be very impressed. It could be this big sensational introduction to your ministry here. Don't test the Lord your God. What he's, what he's basically saying is that like there's, there's these ways that we try to measure success. Literal, mathematical sort of tests that you can do to measure success. And, and we send it like, and we test it like, is this, is this person, is their ministry blessed by God? No, there's like five people there. Is this, yes, there's like 3,000 people there. You're testing to see whether or not God is into what you're doing. That's uncalled for. It's irrational. It's useless. It has no part in the kingdom. It's not how we live. And, and there's another whole aspect to this, Is if you are always waiting for the results, if you're waiting for the result, you're looking to the future for this thing that may come, it may not come, and you're, you're waiting to see, maybe God's gonna bless this thing? Eh, that's, that's the wrong way to use that. The fact that the thing exists, the fact that you have that passion in your heart, that is a blessing. Um, and when you realize that this is not about the result, the result is not the point, that the point is pouring your life into something that matters to you, then you receive the blessing now instead of later. And so we can stop living in the future. We can start living in the present right now. What do you have right now that matters, that you can pour yourself into? It is a gift. Anything else that happens is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. There's this passage in Ephesians where Paul is writing to them, uh, to the church in Ephesus. And there's this prayer he has for them. And it's sort, of, it's, it's, it's sort of how he begins to wrap up like his whole message to them. And his prayer is very specific. And it's not just for them. He wants them to understand it and to sort of spread this prayer around, this idea. He says, may you have power with all God's people. And, and the power is simple. It's, it's not power to impress people. It's not power to gather crowds. It's not power to like start this movement that just affects everyone in the world. The power is very simple. To understand Christ's love. That's the power. And may you know how wide and how long and how high and how deep it is. May you know how, and may you know his love even though it can't be known completely. Then you will be filled with everything God has for you. It's not it's not when you have a massive successful thing. It's it's you will be filled with everything God has for you when you understand God's blessing upon you is not something to be tested. It's something to simply be understood. Just understand it. Just receive it. It's the good gift. And I've come to understand sort of gospel presentations in this whole new way. It's a free gift. Receive it today. And I hear that phrase and I'm like, I've never heard anything so right. Yes, right now. Receive it now. It is a free gift. You need to wake up to it. It's God's blessing and God's love for you is not something to be tested. It's something to be awakened to. And that's why your life should have times of pulling away and Sabbath and resting and being a human being, not a human doing, just sitting and listening and and refocusing on the fact that you are alive and that is a gift and that everything already matters. It doesn't matter later, it's now. And so right now, we're going to take communion. If you are a communion server, you guys can, you can go ahead and take the elements and, and gather and spread around the room. Um, this is the picture of all of this. this is the good gift. The body of Christ was broken for you. The blood of Christ was spilled for you so that you could find healing in every way that you are broken, so that you could find purpose in every way that you feel like you're wandering, so that you could find exactly... Um, the, the blessings that are present, that you could you could be awakened to them, the love of God surrounding you and that you could receive it. And so you don't have to be a member of our church. If you, if you want to follow Christ, come take communion with us. That's how this works. So uh, our communion service, you guys can come on forward and we're gonna take some time and we're gonna pray and then we're gonna sing one more song in the end here. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for this place and these people. I know you've brought specifically the people that you wanted to bring here today. I lift this whole thing up to you, Father. help us to have uh, eyes that see the blessing that it already is. And not trying to squeeze more out of it, but just accepting with joy and love the people that are in our lives, our families, our children. Save us from the, uh, the tragedy and the enslavement of waiting for some future thing. Help us to enjoy our, our loved ones now, our children now. Help us to see that the fact that we have something to pour our lives into, the fact that we have any one thing that matters, is already the grace, and anything else is grace upon grace. Thank you. In your name, amen.